in today's episode of 750 Mills. How just being around languages you don't understand can rewire your brain. And what do selfies say about you? We'll look at the psychology behind selfies and how they can actually kill you or save your life, especially if you're in Ireland. All of that plus today's historical secret link, the feel-good featured track, and some words of wisdom on self-improvement from James Clear is coming at you right now. This episode is brought to you by Love Good Fats. Tasty treats don't need to be unhealthy. Love Good Fats gives you delicious, low-sugar, low-carb protein bars and shakes that are keto-friendly, using responsibly sourced ingredients, making it just plain better for your health and the environment. Visit www.lovegoodfats.com and make sure to use the coupon code 750ML4 when you decide to treat yourself to something good. Hey everyone, welcome to 750Mills, the show that highlights the good stuff in the world today and points you to news, music, and all manner of genuinely useful, or at the very least, mildly interesting things. It's all meant to help you start off your day or your week right. How's everyone doing? This whole year's getting a bit long in the tooth and it ain't even close to over yet. Well, we're still holding on. We'll get there. By the way, my name is Andre, and since we're in the business of good news and feeding your mind with all things interesting and useful, what have we got today? Well, today we're going to talk about how some people pull together, put themselves on the line for others, and save lives. Then, what effect does being around people who speak different languages all the time have on your brain? Here's a quick spoiler, it's a good thing. Finally, do you like taking selfies? Or are you one of those people who silently judge those who do? We'll take a look at the psychology of selfies, who dies more while taking selfies, and how a selfie may have actually saved someone's life. Bravery and Courage You'll never really know for sure if you've got either of these two things until you're put in a situation where you're tested, and when you are, it's either pass or fail. There's really no in-between no matter how much of a tough guy you are in your mind. So, how about we talk about some real brave folks who put themselves on the line and save the lives of others at the risk of their own. Hurricane Laura is the strongest tropical cyclone on record for the state of Louisiana, which is in the deep south of the United States, and that ties the deadly Great Storm of 1856. Hurricane Laura had peak wind speeds of 150 miles per hour and cost around $8.9 million in damage, and it wound up killing 70 people. At the Lake Charles Memorial Hospital for Women in Louisiana, the wind was howling, water was leaking through the windows, and then the power went out. Now, the hospital was running on a limited amount of power from its generators. The small town of Lake Charles knew that the hurricane was headed for them, and there was a mandatory evacuation order in place for residents of the city. Lake Charles would be one of the worst hit by Hurricane Laura. But it would be a different situation for all the staff caring for their patients at the hospital, especially at the neonatal intensive care unit. The hospital was caring for patients which included 19 babies, some premature, including one who was just born at 23 weeks, and some who were on respirators and ventilators. Some of these babies were just very sick. Dr. Juan Bassano and his staff of 14 nurses, 2 nurse practitioners, and 3 respiratory therapists had to hunger down and shelter in place at the NICU, taking two shifts and some getting sleep whenever and wherever they could. I'm looking at the photo of some nurses sitting down together against the floor and the wall, just taking a break or maybe bracing themselves, maybe both. They were on generator power and there was no air conditioning, 
And Louisiana is a hot and humid state. It goes about 83 degrees Fahrenheit, around 28 degrees Celsius, on average at that time of the year. Then at some point in the night, the water goes out. And the winds were getting so bad that they had to move the patients into the hallways, away from the rooms and the windows. And the staff were sleeping in the hallways with the patients for the sake of safety. Here's the thing. The parents weren't with the babies, and this was a tough situation to be in. They had the hurricane to worry about and the mandatory evacuation to contend with on top of the COVID-19 pandemic which complicated these situations for everyone involved. Dr. Bassano would update the parents through Facebook to calm them down, reassure them that the babies were being cared for and were safe. So the staff and the babies couldn't stay in place for too long though because there was an imminent threat of flooding and they had to evacuate the Lake Charles Memorial Hospital for Women to the main hospital which they had to do before conditions became too dangerous for them to transfer and travel across the city. 19 babies from the NICU, four of them were on ventilators. Some were really sick, along with equipment like respirators, incubators, and supplies and things the staff needed to keep the babies safe, all needed to be transported. So what happened next? Doctors, some residents, and the sheriff's department helped transport everything and everyone they needed across the city in record time, in under two hours, and everyone was safe. Alicia Alford, the hospital's vice president and administrator, said that she'd never seen something work so quick and so smooth for something that was as unexpected as this. But that's not where the story ends though. So the transfer was done, everything was good, but Hurricane Laura being Hurricane Laura knocked out the water service at the main hospital as well and there were only two NICUs in Lake Charles. This meant that the babies would have to be transferred to other hospitals in the state as soon as conditions would allow. Well, the story ends with the staff hearing about the very first transfer being arranged, and this was met by an eruption of cheers from everyone who had stayed with their patients through the storm and worked to keep all the babies safe while risking their own lives. That's really good stuff. It's, it's great to hear that. And stories like this that just make me appreciate the fact that you got people out there who are genuinely willing to put themselves on the line to help others. I know that for some of you guys that's your job, but still, some of you guys go above and beyond, and sometimes it's still a pretty thankless experience. So, for what it's worth, thank you guys for what you do. Now, what are some of the benefits of being bilingual? Some of the more obvious advantages include better job prospects at higher pay rates, along with having an easier time when traveling to the countries that speak either language. And here are a few other interesting advantages. Bilingual people have improved cognitive skills. Uh, a report by Omniglot.com states that the brain of a bilingual speaker gets used to managing two languages at the same time. This helps to develop skills for functions ranging from inhibition a cognitive mechanism responsible for discarding irrelevant stimuli, working memory, and switching attention. All these cognitive skills have an impact on the brain's executive control system, which generally takes care of activities like high-level thought, multitasking, sustained attention. And since bilingual people constantly switch between their two languages, they're likely to be also better at switching between different tasks. This happens even if the tasks in question aren't of linguistic nature. Another significant advantage for you if you're bilingual is that it can delay the symptoms of cognitive damage from dementia 
and other degenerative diseases that have to do with your brain and cognition. A study in 2010 found that being bilingual can actually delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease symptoms by up to 5 years. The study's authors conclude with a note that the ability to speak two languages contributes to what's called cognitive reserve, and that's a technical term for the brain's ability to resist damage. If you want a bit more detail, it could also be defined as the ability to optimize or maximize performance through finding alternative ways of adapting its use of available resources within itself. It implies that the things you do are processed using less mental resources or that your brain can process stuff more efficiently, resulting in better mental performance. Basically, the bilingual brain appears to not only be more resistant to damage, but it can also rewire itself, so to speak, to be more efficient or find alternative ways to accomplish cognitive tasks compared to uh, monolingual brains or brains who just know one language. Think of it this way. The monolingual brain is like a gas-guzzling muscle car from the 70s. It can be powerful, but sometimes it's inefficient, and it tends to break down a lot compared to the bilingual brain. While the bilingual brain is like a sturdy hybrid car that can get you where you need to go more efficiently and using more of either resource if it needs to. What if you only know one language? What effect will being around people who speak other languages have on your mind? Well, a study from the University of California, Irvine, has found that even if you only know one language but you hang around people who speak different languages, your brain starts functioning in some ways that are similar to people who are bilingual, even if you don't speak or understand whatever language it is that you're hearing. What's the effect? For one, the more you're around different languages, the easier it becomes for your brain to learn a second one. Judith Kroll, a co-author of the study and UCI Distinguished Professor of Language Science, says this, Monolinguals living in linguistically diverse contexts regularly overhear languages they do not understand and may absorb information about those languages in ways that shape their language networks. So if I'm understanding all of this correctly, that would mean that just being exposed to different languages on a regular basis can actually rewire your brain, change how it works for the better, all before you even decide to learn or know a second language. So I'll tell you what. Put all the studies and references in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself if you'd like to dig deeper. Hey everyone, just taking a quick break to thank you guys for hanging out with me and say hello to you all. Hope you guys are doing great wherever you are. So hello to all the folks in Russia, the UK, and the United States, which happen to be the countries with the highest number of listeners for this podcast. Russia leading the way, the UK in second, and the United States in third. Interesting stuff, stats. Top countries with the highest number of listeners of 750 mils is rounded out by Spain, Ireland, the Philippines, Germany, Tunisia, and then France. Hope you guys enjoy the show as much as I enjoy making it. Keep tuning in. Tell a friend, will ya? If you like tasty, delicious snack food but you also want to stay healthy, you'll want to hear this. Love Good Fats gives you ridiculously delicious and healthy protein bars and shakes in a variety of flavors that are low sugar, low carbohydrate, and keto friendly. So check out these flavors. You got chocolate chip cookie dough, cookies and cream, a chewy, nutty, dark chocolate and sea salt and almond, then you have chocolate and vanilla milkshakes. So these are just some of the many different flavors you have to choose from. Remember that these are low sugar 
low-carbohydrate options that don't skimp on the flavor. Don't just take my word for it though. Love Good Fats gives you award-winning, highly nutritious snacks that have been featured in places like Forbes magazine and Women's Health, using ingredients that are certified, responsibly sourced and sustainable. And you also have gluten-free and plant-based options. So make sure you check out Love Good Fats on www.lovegoodfats.com. I'll put a link to them in this episode's show notes as well. And make sure you use the coupon code 750ML4 because you deserve better, healthier treats. Why do people take selfies? Love them or hate them, ever since we got good front-facing cameras on phones, people have taken and taken selfies like fish to water, even more so in the age of social media. Some people take selfies a lot more than others though. So what's the motivation behind selfie-taken behavior, and what can that tell you about a person? Now you might think to yourself, ah, that's easy. They gotta be a bunch of narcissists to take so many photos of themselves with the exact same posts every single day without having any apprehension of just dumping all of it on social media while waiting for likes and patronizing comments, aren't they? Well, there's more to it than just that, and that's where science comes to the rescue. Many diligent researchers have been digging through the fat to get to the meat of the matter. They're going to spend their time, resources, and funding finding ways to cure cancer or how to alleviate poverty sooner, but instead we can now be thankfully armed with the knowledge of why people take selfies, and now I have a podcast segment ignoring the plight of those with terminal illnesses so we can give more attention to self-centered teenagers and young adults with external validation issues who like captioning everything with felt cute, might delete later, hee hee. In 2017, Mark Griffiths, PhD, and Dr. Janathan Balakrishnan published a study on excessive selfie-taking, which they termed self-itis, in the International Journal of Mental Health and Addiction, which suggested that there were six main reasons for why people take selfies. Reason number one is self-confidence, e.g. taking selfies to feel more positive about oneself. Number two, environmental enhancement meaning taking selfies in specific locations to feel good and show off to others. Reason number three is social competition, that is taking selfies to get more likes on social media. Number four is attention seeking, or taking selfies to gain attention from others. Number five is mood modification, or taking selfies to feel better. And number six is subjective conformity, that is taking selfies to fit in with one social group and peers. So basically, selfies were ice cream. There'd be six flavors of self-indulgence. The researchers also added these thoughts. Issues around vanity can kick in. The findings of our research showed that excessive selfie-takers were more likely to be motivated to take selfies for attention-seeking, environmental enhancement, and social competition, and which emphasizes perceived identity. More research, this time published in the journal called Media Psychology, give us similar insights with some interesting nuances to it based on a survey of 276 college students, where they estimated how many selfies they took in the past week, both alone and with other people in the photo. Open-ended questions were used in the study, in which they listed what motivates them to take selfies. Here's what the report from Psychology Today says. The results show that one particular aspect of narcissism, grandiose exhibitionism, was the only personality trait linked to selfie-taking, and solo selfies in particular. Exhibitionism wasn't related to taking selfies that included other people. However, 
Even though this correlation was statistically significant, it wasn't that large. So grandiose exhibitionism is only one small factor that makes people more prone to taking solo selfies. The researchers coded the open-ended responses about people's selfie-taking motives into different categories and calculated the percentage of respondents who listed each type of motive. So motive 1 is narcissistic. For example, I think I am attractive and I have no problem sharing that. It's the highest at 29.5%. The second one is sharing and connecting. An example given is, I want to share my experiences with my friends at 23.3%. And third is functional use. For example, I'm a sponsored fitness athlete. It's my job. And it's at 22.80%. A fourth one is self-esteem boosting. An example of this is so I can feel better about myself. And it falls in at 15.5%. A fifth motive uh, is memory. For example, to document memories falls in at 5.7%. And finally, conformity. An example given is, it's what young people do, so it's just a trend I follow. And it falls in at 3.1%. So, narcissistic motives were the most common, but sharing and connecting and functional use came in close second and third. So while almost a third of the respondents indicated narcissistic reasons for posting selfies, that still means 70% listed other reasons. The researchers note that, interestingly, These narcissistic motives were not linked to participants' level of narcissism. Additionally, the researchers argue that concluding that this shows evidence of narcissism of young people is premature. They point out that young adults tend to be more focused on themselves, but not necessarily more narcissistic. Concerns about finding your own identity and how you present yourself to other people loom large in young adulthood. So what did they conclude their research with? They say that this research suggests that self-centered motives for taking selfies are common, but not necessarily strongly linked to trait narcissism. And narcissism's connection to selfie-taking is a small part of a bigger picture. Now that we've gotten through a bit of the psychology behind selfies, who is most likely to die when taking a selfie? A 2018 study published in the Journal of Family Medicine and Primary Care in India found that between October 2011 and November 2017, 259 people died while taking a selfie, with the number of deaths trending higher with each passing year. The average age of people who died was 23, but the stat that stands out is that 72.5% of those who died were male, with the remaining 27.5% female. The researchers noted that this gender difference was due to a higher probability of risk-taking in males. Four times as many males as females die due to their own risky behavior while taking a selfie, which is in line with other studies that explain gender differences in death causes between males and females in general, showing more risk-taking behavior in males as being a factor. What are some of the most common causes of death while taking selfies? From least to greatest, here's what they found. So first we have selfies involving dangerous animals. It's a good start. Eight people died from this. 2. Misuse of firearms. 11 people died from this. 3. Electrocution. 16 people died from electrocution. How? Number 4. Burning. 48 people died from just being on fire. Number 5. Falling. Also 48 people. Number 6. Accidents involving cars or trains. 51 people. Number 7. Drowning. 
70 people drowned while taking a selfie. Don't mess around with risky stuff, man. Play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. Here's the thought, though. If death by selfie were an Olympic sporting event, who'd be on the podium? Well, getting the bronze medal would be the United States, surprisingly accounting for just 5% of all the selfie deaths in the world. Silver medal would go to Russia with just 6% of all selfie deaths in the world. And impressively, the gold medal would go to India, getting credit for over 61% of all selfie-related deaths in the world based on the data. Okay, now that we know selfies can kill, can a selfie save your life? In the case of a 28-year-old lady from Ireland, a selfie she took played a big part in doing just that. Stephanie Farnan from County Wexford suffered a stroke and passed out after bleeding began in her brain on a Friday just on the 23rd of August, so last month. She took a selfie just 14 minutes before she was discovered by her father and this selfie was used by doctors to figure out the time frame involving the stroke, which allowed them to give her anti-clotting medication that can only be administered within a specific span of time based on her condition. Her doctors believed that the stroke was caused by a reaction to a contraceptive patch and a hole in her heart. So the report also notes that she would need to undergo heart surgery, but that she's also now on the road to recovery, which is good to hear. Finally, are selfies of any real use to society? Well, if you need to get an Uber, the answer to that would be yes. And it has to do with the COVID-19 pandemic that we're still finding ourselves in and the safety precautions that governments and companies are still recommending be kept in place. The BBC reports that Uber is rolling out, or maybe has already rolled out, a selfie feature on its app so that drivers can verify that riders are wearing face masks. Drivers already must take a mask selfie each day before starting work. If the scanner doesn't detect the drivers wearing a mask, they're blocked from using the app to pick up passengers. Uh, Uber had already introduced a no-mask, no-ride policy back on the 18th of May and extended it indefinitely due to the ongoing pandemic, requiring both drivers and riders to wear a face covering at all times during a ride. So drivers and riders are able to cancel a trip without charge if they report the other party is not wearing a mask. And failing to comply can lead to account deactivation. Anyway, it's time for this episode's featured track, something from Death Cab for Cutie from their 2011 album Codes and Keys, and it's a song called You Are a Tourist, a song that's unusual for the band in comparison with most of the kind of music they're known for because of how chipper and optimistic it sounds. Some people have speculated that this might have been because of lead singer Ben Gibbard's happy state of mind, which is likely due to his recent marriage to fellow musician and actress Zoe Deschanel at that point in time, though that unfortunately fell apart after just two years. The song itself was actually a late and unexpected addition to the album, but once the band recorded it, bassist Nick Harmer said that as soon as we recorded it, we just knew it was going to be the first song to be released from this album. That's it for this episode of 750 Mills. Make sure you head on over to 750ml.fm to check out links to stuff we've talked about here. And that includes the feature track that I'm pretty sure you'll be glad to have listened to, along with this episode's secret link, which is related to one of the things we talked about and how far back in time you'd have to go to discover its roots. You can subscribe and listen to the 750 Mills podcast on podomatic.com, please do, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts may be found. 
Just type in 750ML Space Podcast in the search box and tap on the follow or the subscribe button. Links to all of that will be in the show notes for this episode as well, which you can find on 750ML.fm. That's 750ML.fm. Hey, if you've been enjoying it so far, please consider leaving a star rating and a short review if you can. Your feedback helps improve the podcast and it can help other people find it as well. Anyway, folks, thanks for hanging out with me. I'll leave you with a few thoughts from public speaker and best-selling author James Clear on how you should look at improvement. The enemy of improvement is neither failure nor success. The enemy of improvement is boredom, fatigue, and lack of concentration. The enemy of improvement is a lack of commitment to the process because the process is everything. Hope you have a good day. Take care now.